We're really excited to be kind of getting started. It's uh, kind of always fun when you first kind of get things rolling again. As you can see, I was also doing sound today. We had a kind of some uh, interesting uh, plan uh, problems, but uh, God is good. God is gracious, and uh, what He wants to do tonight and what His will is, is going to be done. And so uh, we're just excited about it. I hope that you guys are also excited. Hope you guys missed it as much as I did to be here. Today we're going to be starting a new series of Philippians that we're going to go through the whole book over the next five weeks. It's a little ambitious, but I think we will make it. And uh, the title of this is Christ in Everything. And it kind of, to tie that in with, I'll tell you the title of our sermon for today is To Live is Christ and to die is gain. And this is taken from uh, one of the verses, uh, uh, verse 21 of Philippians 1, that we'll be kind of looking at today a little bit. But this is kind of the cornerstone of this message, and I believe the cornerstone of the entire book. And so it's going to be, as we go through this series and looking at what God wants to do, um, Christ in everything, and to live as Christ, and to die as gain, is going to be a big kind of core to what we're going to be looking at and focusing on. Because the center of Christ in everything is to live a life that is Christ-centered. And to live without a fear even of death. Because we know that to die is gain because then we are forever and eternity with our Savior. So we'll spend some more time unpacking that and unpacking that verse a little bit later. But we've got uh, 20 verses ahead of it uh, to get through. And uh, our goal is to get to verse 26 today. And before we dive in, let's take a minute. We want to give this time over to God in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we can be here today, that we can dive back into Church at Five and what you want to do. And I believe, Father, that you have a plan and a purpose in this meeting today, God. It's not just that we all didn't have something better to do. It's not just that uh, we just really like hanging out. It's, there's something deep that you want to do and, and uh, put within us today. So I ask that you would open all of our hearts to receive your truth as we go into your word, and you'd give me wisdom, Father, to speak only your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, before we dive in, you can open your Bibles if you have one or turn it on to Philippians chapter 1. But before we go in, I just want to give a little tiny, tiny bit of background. I'll give a little bit maybe uh, every week, but I don't want to spend too much time. First and foremost, the letter, uh, it's, well, it's a letter. It's written to the people of Philippi, the Philippians, by Paul. And this is really clear. And this, is, uh, this letter is one of four of the prison epistles so meaning that Paul wrote this while he's in prison, something that is kind of relevant as we look at the context of what he's saying and the message that he's delivering. Uh, we can kind of keep in mind that he's doing this all from a prison cell. And uh, Paul and Silas had gone to Philippi on Paul's second missionary journey. And he kind of uh, was led there by the Spirit through some various situations, and so, but it's, it's such a, an encouraging letter we're going to be diving into today, and it all kind of begins right here as he's led there, as he's led to Philippi, and uh, because from there we see the, the gospel, we see Christ ministered all throughout Europe, and it really kind of was headed right here in Philippi, and so something that we still to this day see the results of as Christ and see the, the Christian culture, uh, that's kind of the undertones of Christian culture in uh, the West here in Europe, and it all kind of started right here in Philippi as Paul shared the gospel with them. And um, the account of Paul's journey to Philippi is found in Acts chapter 16, so you guys, if you want to read that and read how he went there and everything, you can kind of check that out on your own time, but let's dive right into verse 1. And we're going to be kind of uh, dissecting some of these verses because there are a few verses, if you've uh, or been in, around Christian culture any amount of time, you'll have heard a lot of famous verses, a lot of uh, verses that are used often that come out of this book. 
And so uh, we're going to spend a lot more time on a few verses. And so some of it I'm just going to be kind of throwing in some interesting uh, uh, accounts or some interesting kind of side notes uh, that I think are important, but we won't have time to dissect. So let's dive in. It starts off, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And side note, first side note right at the beginning, it's really interesting that Paul brings Timothy in here because this was kind of someone that was, a, who was young, he was somebody that he was mentoring, but he doesn't kind of put him off to the side, he brings him in and says, and brings him in with him as an equal in the ministry that he's in. And so there's a, a significance in the importance of mentoring and how Christ does that. And so he says, Paul and Timothy as, brings them in as equal servants of Christ Jesus. And that, of course, is also important because we see where the authority of this letter comes from. That the authority is not in Paul or in his wisdom or his ability or his understanding. The authority is in Jesus Christ, the one whom Paul is serving. So we can trust these words that they're not just Paul's opinions, but they are from Christ and an encouragement from him because that is the one that Paul is serving. So to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, so this is the pastors, the elders, one of the, I think the only epistle that he directly addresses them in addition to the people. So another little side note about this one. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 sets the tone for the letter. This is an encouraging letter. This is a letter that I think we'd all like to receive. And as we go through it, we'll see that more and more. It's a positive, encouraging, uplifting letter. It's not to, has almost no, has no rebuke. No, uh, he's not in any way dissatisfied or displeased with the Philippians. He does have one small correction he addresses in chapter 4. But other than that, it's just a lot of encouragement. And I find this interesting because I didn't even notice this until I was kind of going through my notes that uh, the end of this series is going to come up right at our one-year anniversary of uh, Church at Five. And the beginning of uh, one year ago, we actually started off with Galatians, which is, I think, the polar opposite of Philippians when it comes to the context that Paul and the way and the tone that Paul sets, where in Galatians you have constant rebuke and, and he's very displeased and he's trying to bring them back to the right direction. We're here in Philippians, there he's encouraging them because they are doing well. So it's, uh, it's encouragement, it's edification, and it's a celebration of what God has been doing there in, uh, with the people of Philippi and what had God been doing in them and through them. So this letter is a celebration of Christian life and the experience of putting Christ in everything. So that's going to be our cornerstone. Verse 3 through 5. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I love that introduction. Again, what a letter. How would it be to receive a letter like that? And this passage hinges on one particular word, partnership. He says that he's thankful he re- every time he remembers them because of the partnership. And so first I want to look at kind of the, uh, the, the way that he lays out this beginning and, and kind of... Let's, do you have anybody in your life like that? Do you have anybody in your life where you think, man, every time you just pop in my head, I thank God that I have the opportunity to even think about you. He's saying, I thank God even when I think about you. I remember you in all my prayers. Man, that is something that should be an encouragement for us and maybe a challenge to have that kind of love, that kind of relationship with people, with believers, fellow believers especially. We see Paul's love for the Philippians. And that this letter is more than just the founder of this church talking to 
his people, talking to the, you know, he's not just shepherding here. This is a letter between friends. There's a relationship here. There's something deep going on. And in Philippians chapter 2 and 4, that we'll be looking at later in this series, Paul brings to light in more detail this partnership. Because the, they had been partnering with him from the beginning in his ministry. So after he left there, from that time all the way until this letter is being written, they had been supporting him financially, praying for him regularly, writing him regularly. They had been supporting him from the beginning. And so they were partnering with him in his ministry, in the spreading of the gospel. But not just the spreading of it, but also in the believing of it. From the first time of their meeting, they had been supporting him. And even now, he's, he's, not, he's not doing His mission seems to kind of have taken a, a turn. Now he's in prison. He's in Rome. Every day is kind of a question, is, is this going to you know, end in execution? Or am I going to be set free? And still, they are supporting him. They, in fact, this letter we'll look at later in this series uh, is a response to a gift that they had sent to him. And as, he sent, as the messenger who brought the gift was leaving, he sent this letter with him. So there was a partnership. But the partnership between them, again, was not just about financial support, not just about the gifts that they were giving, but their unity in their belief. And we are today united. And we've talked a lot about that, but we're, we're united in this church. We're united today right now as, as the Church at Five congregation. But more important, or most important, we are in partnership with one another in our understanding of the gospel and our connection and our unity with Christ and believing on Him as our Lord and our Savior. We are of like mind in this. In our understanding of the truth. And through this unity, I want us to, to partner in with Paul in this kind of, this, uh, this love that he has, this joy that he finds in his unity with them. That we would have this joy with one another. That we would remember one another always in our prayers. I remember you always in my prayers. I just, I, I really get stuck on that, how amazing that is. And something that seems so rare to have such a connection, such a partnership, such a unity as believers. And that's something that I would hope that we would grow in and be strengthened in, encouraged in, to be united with one another. That it is amazing. It's a, it's a gift that we both share in this belief, in this following of Jesus Christ, and that we can remember one another in prayer to the point where we're, we're excited even when someone pops in our head. That's a pretty amazing aspect that I would just be like, man, Sam, I'm so glad that you popped in my head today. I was just thanking God for that. Have that level of love and devotion in our unity for one another. Now from here he moves into verse 6. And verse 6 is... Again, this is, this is where we're going to kind of spend a little more time. This is one of the more famous, well-known verses in this chapter. So, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I love this verse. It's an incredibly encouraging and uh, strengthening verse for us as believers today. But a few parts of it I think we need to unpack. And I want to start with, uh, to under, I think to understand the context of this verse, we need to kind of look at where the verse is leading. It all kind of heads to one point, and that is the day of Christ Jesus. So we need to first take a moment. What is that? What is the day of Christ Jesus? This is not a new concept. This is something that we see and just an incredible amount of times throughout the Bible. 
And it started all the way back in the Old Testament where it's referred to as the day of the Lord. And I'll give one example in Ezekiel uh, chapter 30, verse 3. One of many, many examples. For the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. A day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. This is the day of the Lord. And it's a day of judgment. Now, in the Old Testament, we see this used in different ways. Sometimes when it refers to the day being near, it's referring to a time where the day of the Lord was the day where God would bring judgment on a particular nation. But this was all foreshadowing for what was to come, the great day of the Lord, the day when all will be judged, every nation will be judged. And to kind of stay in line with our verse, let's bring Jesus into it and look at John chapter 5, verse 26 through 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And that's good news for us. That's, that life was also imparted to us as we are brought from death to life. This is because Christ has that authority to do so. And in verse 27, And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So now we see that not only does he have, has he been given the authority of life from God, but also the authority to judge. And this is, the, the day of the Lord is the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul in uh, several times in the New Testament, refers to it sometimes as the day of the Lord, sometimes as the day of Jesus or Christ Jesus, and even a couple times as the Lord Jesus. So it's, this is one and the same. This is the end. This is when Jesus comes back a second time, and there will be destruction and judgment and separation from the love of God for all those who don't call on him as Lord. So for us as believers, if, we're, if you're here today and you're a believer, then this is a day of rejoicing, a day where we get to be forever in the presence of God. So that is the day of the Lord. It is a, a great and terrible day. And I think it's a point to note how often this day is talked about in the Bible. There's, um, there's very few books of the Bible that don't mention it in one way or another. And so uh, Jesus, the Lord, is adamant to make sure that people know that this day is coming. And it's an important day for us to be aware of. So, but for us as believers, looking back to our verse, verse 6, Paul is saying, being confident of this, so he's confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul is confident that the work in them will continue until the very end when they are made new, perfect in the image of Christ, given new bodies, resurrected bodies as the Bible refers to it. So it's all leading up to this. But the important thing here is the confidence that Paul expresses. How can we have this confidence? How can we be confident that this work will continue in us? What's important to note is who began the work. Who began the work? He began the work. He who began the work in you we'll see it to completion. It was him who began the work. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in what we've done. It's in he who began the work. So our confidence never stands on our own ability. It never stands on our own uh, failings or successes. It stands on he who began the work the work. And two quick things when it comes to work, I want us to look at this from both angles. There's 
we know that the, there is the work of Christ on the cross. And this was something we didn't earn. We didn't deserve it. We didn't, we, nobody here was there when it happened. You didn't help it. Jesus didn't need your assistance. And that was a great work that was done for us. Christ died for our sins. This happened outside of us. Nobody was there. It was something that Christ did for us. But here Paul makes the point to say the good work in you. So there's a distinction between the work of the cross that was done for us, where our sins were covered by the blood of Christ. This is where we are made righteous because that propitiation was taken care of. But here Paul is saying his confidence isn't in the work of the cross alone. It's in what God has been doing in them. So it's not only the work that was done for you, but also the work that is done in you. So what does this really mean? That the assurance and the confidence that we have in our salvation or of our salvation and the faithfulness of God is seen in the work done within us. That's where our confidence lies. That is our assurance in the work that is done within us. So this is the transformation of our hearts. This is the, that we are new creatures in Christ. This is that the old man has passed away. That, we're, that, the, that God writes the law, his law on our hearts. And if you're here today and you say, well, I don't know, what you t- I don't know if, I'm, if that's me or not. And if you have a desire to follow Christ, and I would put it as far as to say in any capacity, if you're always wanting to move forward in that, it doesn't matter where you are. Paul didn't say, I am confident of the work that has been completed in you. He said, I am confident of the work that, is, that has began in you and being, bringing, being brought to completion. So it doesn't matter where you are on that scale. We're not meant to be perfect right now. But rather, we are being made perfect, being made into the image of Christ until that day, until that, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord. And just to seal this in, our confidence, our assurance, I would read Romans eleven twenty nine. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. I feel like that is the most clear-cut verse. Irrevocable. What he has given, he's not going to take away. He began the work in you, and our confidence is in the evidence of a changed heart. And we can trust and we can know and we can be assured that he finishes what he starts. So the question is never, uh, is God taking something away? The question is always for me, well, is my heart being changed? That's my confidence. That's my assurance. Not in my ability, not in what I've accomplished or lack thereof. My confidence is in the work of a changed heart within me. And the evidence of that is my, I I believe it, it hinges on our deepest desires. And it comes down to ultimately making Christ everything. It doesn't mean that that's going to be done immediately. We're living perfectly. Everything's right. Heart's in the perfect place. But the question is always, am I, am I, with each day, am I taking a step closer to that or not? Am I going the other direction? Am I getting further away from him? And that is the evidence of a changed heart. And that is our assurance. And that's the assurance that Paul is talking about. And can, he continues uh, with this thought in verse 7. I'll look at verse 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. So he's saying, not only am I confident, but... I know it's the right thing to think this. I'm not just loosely throwing this out. It's right for me to feel this way about you, referring to that confidence. Since 
And this is interesting that we won't have time to dive into very deep, but since I have you in my heart, which is an interesting reasoning for why he feels so assured in this. And I think it goes back to this unity that he has with them. And in that unity, he's seen how they've changed. He's seen how they've moved. And that has put them in his heart with a joy. And so his confidence is not only in the Lord who began the work, but also in the visible signs of their changed heart. So he says, since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, so whether I'm still here in prison or God releases me no matter where I am, all of you share in God's grace with me. So this is going back to that partnership, that unity together as believers. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So another demonstration of the love between Paul and these people and that unification as believers, that partnership as believers. And I pray that today we would have this affection, the affection of Jesus Christ and sacrificial love for one another. Being united in God's grace, being united in what God has done for each and every one of us. We're united in that. So, and also I like that he points out that it doesn't, you know, he's saying if I, if I stay here in prison or I'm, I'm released and I'm out preaching on the streets, this truth holds the same. Meaning, I would, I would apply this, that this is, it doesn't matter where you are in your life, It doesn't matter where you are in your walk with God. It doesn't matter what season you're in, where you live globally. We are always united in this. The church is always united in their understanding of the truth and this grace that we've received from God our Father through the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So no matter where you are, no matter where I am, we're united in that. We're united. And that's what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter where, what God does with my life next. We're still connected. We're partners in that. So, continuing verse 9 through 11, here Paul gives us this glimpse into his prayer life for the Philippians. And with this, I would just ask that we really hear these words and let this, I mean, I just, I listen to this and I think, I want someone to be praying that over me. So I would offer all of you, if you want to be praying for the leaders here in Calvary Chapel, this is a good place to start. This is a great prayer to pray over anybody and uh, an encouragement for all of us. So verse 9, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So there, again, referring to the day of judgment for the world, but a day of of relief, of fulfillment, of joy for us as believers. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and the glory, to the glory and praise of God. So quickly breaking down this prayer a little bit, His hope is for them to have knowledge, to have a depth of insight that they can discern what is right and wrong and they would be made blameless and pure so that they would know the path before them, that they would walk down the right way, walk in the right direction in their lives. But this comes out of what? This comes out of love. What is he? He first lays it out that this, that their love would abound. In this abounding love, this is the beginning of knowledge. This is the beginning of a deeper insight. Of, uh, to be able to discern which way is right and pure. And the conclusion, he reveals the true purpose of it all. That it would be 
always to the glory and the praise of God, that Christ would be glorified in it. Because Jesus is glorified, he is honored in our transformation. As we are renewed, as we're made new, as God works in our heart, it's good for us, but it's also glorifying to him because he is the source of that. As he continues that work in us and we benefit greatly as he molds us and transforms our hearts, there is also such a great, deep pleasure and joy in knowing that it's bigger than just me. It's bigger than just uh, my how it affects me, but Christ also gets glory in my change, in my transformation. And that should be a pleasure and a joy for us today because it's all through him. He is the source. He says, fulfilled or filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It all comes through Jesus Christ. Christ. Let's continue, verse 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, talking about his being in prison. As a result, it has, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Christ is being glorified, magnified in his circumstances. And that's something that is easy to wrap our brains around, but hard to live. I mean... This, he's not uh, just having a bad week. He's been imprisoned. Interesting fact, he would have been chained day and night to a guard. Not the same guard. They would kind of go through rotations and he would be chained to them. And he says, I'm in chains for Christ. And everybody knows it. And I can, I can guess why everybody knew it. Because Paul was a real, true evangelist. And I can imagine that every time a new guard that he hadn't been locked to yet came into the room, he probably had a big smile on his face like, hey man, you're going to be chained to me for like the next 12 hours and uh, you're going to know everything there is to know about the gospel and you can't get away. (laughs) He loved this opportunity. And it's, it's interesting he points this out because especially in this letter, because being in prison, I mean, even now, has a a pretty negative stigma, but then it was really looked down upon, and even to associate with somebody that was in prison wouldn't have been a really great idea for your social status. And, And Philippi especially was founded by retired soldiers, people who would have been even more kind of repulsed by someone who was imprisoned, and yet... He's saying, hey, not only is, you know, is Christ working, but he's doing something amazing here. And I have these opportunities to be chained to these guards. And now, words out. They all know that this is for Christ. They all know about the gospel. But not only is God at work in, in Paul directly as he's advancing the gospel through this his time in prison, and uh, through the, the whole palace guard, knew about him, knew about what Christ had done, had heard the truth. But he also sets an example, instilling confidence in other believers, instilling a boldness in them to also spread the gospel without fear of circumstance. And to not, even, to not only not be afraid of a negative response or a, a negative situation, but to be excited about what God might do with that. It leaves us all pretty 
empty when it comes to excuses about spreading the gospel, spreading the truth of, of what God has done. Because no matter your position or your situation, there's always an opportunity to share the love of God with someone. Sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways. I think we definitely have to read the room, so to say. We have to look at situations. I think Paul also had wisdom in that. But there are always opportunities, and we should be looking for those opportunities to glorify Christ in all that we do. And uh, I would just add to that that you are where you are for a purpose, no matter where you are, no matter what your situation. You don't have to wait. I think uh, the thing we always get caught in is, you know, I want to share the gospel more, but I just, I need to know more. I need to have a better understanding. I need to, uh, I'm just going to, you know, wait until that day when I can go and be a missionary in this or that place. I mean, it starts right now. You are where you are for a reason and for a purpose, and you can take advantage of that. And uh, I don't think any of us can really hold up to any excuse when we look at Paul who's chained to a guard in prison and filled with joy at the opportunity to share the word of God with them. Whereas I would maybe be like, ah, this sucks, I'm waiting until I get out of here. Like, I don't know if I would have that heart, but I would hope that we all would try to adopt this heart of always being excited to share the love of God with people. Verse 15 through 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So some people were preaching for the right reasons, and some were preaching for the wrong. They were in rivalry, especially with Paul, in rivalry with one another. They wanted to elevate themselves. And a lot of these guys were belittling Paul, putting him down for his time in prison. And I don't know exactly what that looked like, but I can imagine there being a situation where someone says something like, hey, I am out here preaching. Clearly God is blessing me more. Clearly God's blessing my ministry more than his. He's in prison. Listen to what I have to say. Obviously God's abandoned him. He says those people didn't, they were in rivalry with him. Whereas the others were, they saw why Paul was there. Like, I know, we know why Paul's there. He's there for a purpose. He's defending the gospel in a place that we can't reach. But these people were talking badly about him. And something I think we definitely still see today, in my experience, if you're in, in ministry for any period of time, you see rivalry, you see people talk about looking at judging other people's ministry, judging how God is working. And we have to be very careful about that because we want to be honoring of God and knowing that he can, he's working in ways that we don't see, in ways we don't understand. And how he blesses one ministry and in this way and a different way with another ministry, that's up to him. We trust him to reach to the people that he's trying to reach through the means he's using. And so that's something we want to take away from that, but I would also add for us today, because every single believer is called to be a proclaimer of truth, and as such, let's be in self, let's always be self-reflective when it comes to our motives. We don't want to uh, be on the wrong side of that. We don't want to be preaching the truth for the wrong reasons, but I do also want to add that it's interesting that Paul Paul, is, his whole point here is that who cares? I don't care what they're saying about me. Let them talk bad about me. As long as they're also talking about Jesus and the cross and what Christ has done for them, I don't care. And so he emphasizes the importance of the truth and preaching the truth 
above himself, above how he looks to other people, above rivalry and competition. None of that really matters, he's saying. The truth and Christ preach is more important than anything else. And that's also something we should really grasp onto. Especially if we're caught up in any kind of uh, web or complications that sometimes uh, ministries can, can develop. We want to always remember that the truth and the preaching of that truth is so precious to Christ and so precious and should be always honored and, and always held up high above ourselves, above how we look. But at the same time, it would be our hope that our tongue and our heart are in line with one another and in line with God's truth and his love and his deep, passionate heart for the lost, that we wouldn't be doing it for ourselves or personal gain, but for him. Verse 18, or 18b and uh, 19. So he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, of the spirit of, of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So he's in prison. He's faced with uh, what he knows that there's a chance that he, this could end in his death. And his greatest hope and concern and confidence is that through these, the prayers of these believers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to work out. And he even points out that this is his deliverance. So we know how the story ends. Paul isn't delivered. He ends up being executed. So let's examine this word deliverance and what his ultimate deliverance is. Verse 20 and 21. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So here Paul lays out the answer. What is his ultimate deliverance? That Christ is exalted. That Christ is honored and glorified in his body. Whether that means he's released from prison or executed, that God, that Jesus Christ would be glorified in his body. And this is found only in our salvation with Jesus Christ. So let's unpack this verse a little bit more. I eagerly expect and hope so there's this kind of, he's looking forward to something, but before that he draws us to the other side, the negative. First, uh, that I will in no way be ashamed. What is he talking about here? Where is he? I think for us, it's, are we ashamed of, of Christ? This is, goes back to our need and, our, and taking advantage of opportunities to spread the truth of what God has done, and we don't ever want to find ourselves ashamed of that. We never want to find ourselves in a place where we're, um, you know, scared about what people might say or scared about what people might think, but that we're bold in our proclamation of this truth in all areas of our lives. So, but he's not only, not only does he want to be unashamed, but to have courage in such a way that Christ is exalted whether it's in his life or in his death. Now, in life, our body is an important phrase because how many of you guys did anything this week outside of your body? Did anybody have any out-of-body experiences? No? Just wanted to check because otherwise it might not apply to you. So, basically, to honor Christ in life with our body is to honor him in every single thing we do. Every single thing we do with our body, that he is exalted. Is Christ being exalted in your body? When you're alone, when you're enjoying your free time, your time off, and when you're, is, is Christ exalted in what you think? Is he exalted in what you speak? 
this one's for me too, is he exalted in what you look at, what you watch. And I'm not just talking about, you know, porn or anything like that or Game of Thrones, you know, the, the really the worst things to see. I'm talking about, is, <laughs> that was for you, is, is, uh, is Christ exalted even in the, the not-so-bad shows we're watching? And I think the side of this is that we don't want to side on, well, is it bad? Is it that bad to watch this? But rather side on, hey, when I'm watching this, am I, is my heart being transformed for the better? Is Christ being exalted as I do this, as I watch this, as I read this? And I, I'm in no way saying that I am like have this worked out in my life. This is something that uh, is a challenge, I think, for all of us, that Christ would be honored in our body. In all that we do, all that we think, all that we say, Romans 6.13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So that's us, again, from Christ, who had that, was given that authority to do so. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Every part of who you are, every part of your body should be honoring to God. So what about in death? Well, I believe, first of all, Paul was, he, he was not sure exactly what was going to happen. Maybe he would be delivered Maybe he would be set free and that Christ would be exalted in that. But he also was sure that if he was to be executed, Christ would be exalted in that because he was completely entrusting his life even unto death into God's hands. Which ties us, we'll we'll jump back to uh, verse 21 one more time. And that we, to talk about how we don't have to have a fear of death, but it's something that we can look forward to in the sense of being with Christ for eternity. And Paul kind of goes through a, a bit of a, a debate, it seems, with himself over uh, which is best and uh, the different ways that God can be glorified in him and through his, through his body, whether life or death. In verse 22 through 26, If I am to go on living in the body... This will mean fruitful labor for me. So that's a good thing. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Now that's easy, even more emphasized for him because he was in prison and you know, being, in, being with Christ uh, after death was definitely better, but it should be something that's, Uh, true for all of us, no matter what our life is. Verse 24, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So, So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So, he is saying, like, I love this kind of interesting debate he's got going on in his head here. He's saying, man, it's better by far to be with Christ, but I'm also thankful that I'm here for your sake, that through me, your walk can be increased. And what an, what an awesome and kind of sacrificial way to think that I'd rather, I'd rather continue where I am, I'd rather continue in suffering for your benefit. Again, this deep love that he has for them. He's ultimately making Christ his ultimate satisfaction. His satisfaction is found so much in Christ that no matter what happens, he knows, one, that Christ will be exalted, and two, that even in death, it's a gain, it's a win, which is so confounding, I think, for us, because to die doesn't feel like a win, it feels like game over. It's, you've lost. But when Christ is our ultimate satisfaction, 
our ultimate goal, being with him is better than anything this world has to offer. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is only possible when we long to glorify Christ in everything. John Piper gives us the formula for this. And if you are anywhat familiar with John Piper, you've probably heard this phrase because he made it up and uses it often. But it fits in perfectly with this message. And he says, Christ is most magnified in us, so most glorified, most honored in us, when we are most satisfied in him. I'll read that one more time. Christ is most magnified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So when we say to live is Christ and to die is gain, the question becomes, is, that is not an absolute truth. That is not something that's true for all believers. It's true for Paul, but for you, for me, is to live Christ or is to live to be successful, is to live to be happy, or is to live Christ. Because when it's Christ, then it doesn't matter what we face, it doesn't matter what our adversity is, we are satisfied in Him, and then He is glorified in us. I want to invite the band to come back up. And I want us, I want to encourage you guys, I'll leave you guys with this, to remember this phrase, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that that means you are satisfied in Him. More satisfaction in Him than anything this world has to offer. No matter what money can bring, no matter what success can bring, no matter what relationships can bring, there is nothing that satisfies like Christ. And when this is our mantra when this is something that is close to our heart and spoken with truth then to live is Christ and to die is gain will be true for us when we are most satisfied in him so we're going to sing one more song let's be united in the gospel in the grace that we have as believers and let's worship God together. So I invite you guys to stand as we do one more song.